Uh, that's where we're going to be starting out there tonight in Luke 3, looking at just uh, the first six verses in Luke chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see one on the chair in front of you or one of the chairs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one. Just take it with you. It's an it's a early Christmas present. Again, uh, we're in Luke 3 tonight, so I'd invite you to stand with me now. Uh, it's our practice here at Rivercrest to stand for uh, the reading of God's Word, and we do that for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is just to actively demonstrate our participation in the reading and hearing of God's Word, that we're not here as passive observers tonight, but that we are all here together in the presence of God to hear His Word to us. This is Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Yeah, there's going to be a quiz on all them names in just a little bit. <laughs> the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here on a Tuesday in this old warehouse where the air conditioning will not keep up with the crowd even in December. And Lord, we pray now that you would just be at work in us, that you would speak through all of the chaos, that you would shine through all of the mess, that we might see you more clearly, that we might know you more truly, <clears throat> that we might serve you more wholeheartedly. Would you do that for us tonight? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So... One of the things that we have uh, sought to do, that we've tried to do here in the month of December as we've been uh, walking through Advent, as we've been making our way uh, through this Gospel of Luke, uh, this season of waiting, one of our aims has been really to take just an honest look, uh, to really take an honest look at the historical event that is uh, the coming of Jesus of Nazareth into the world. Uh, so we wanted to sort of pull back the veil. We wanted to, we wanted to look at, at this event that has really shaped and, and impacted all of human history ever since. And so we, what we wanted to do is, is just starting there in Luke 2, is we wanted to see the story of Jesus as told through those first witnesses uh, to his coming. And so we started with the announcement of the angels to the shepherds in the field, that to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's where we started. And right out of the gate, what we discovered was, was that the gospel message, okay, the message of Jesus is not just for the elites, that it's not just for the all-stars, that it's not just for the insiders, it's not just for the people of privilege, 
but that the message of the gospel, okay, the good news of great joy that will be for all people, that that message really is for all people. Because if the message of the birth of Jesus can, can be told to shepherds who weren't welcomed into the city, then the message of the birth of Jesus can be for anyone. You see, it's that nobody is off limits. It's good news for every single one of us. And so I want you to know that, that regardless of, of all your doubts, regardless of all your baggage, regardless of all your prejudices, regardless of all of, all of that, the gospel story is for you. It doesn't matter what shape you're in. It doesn't matter how successful you are or any other qualifier that you might choose. What we see in Luke 2 is that the message of Jesus is for you. And so when we get to Luke 3, when we get to Luke 3 here tonight, what we see in this brief story of John the Baptist, what we're really seeing is sort of a crescendo that's happening here in the narrative. We're seeing this point of exclamation, like God has just put a divine exclamation point within this story where this guy comes up out of the wilderness. If you don't know, John the Baptist is a weird guy. It's okay. There are weird people in the Bible, and he is a weird guy. He comes out of the wilderness. He's got camel hair clothes. He's got locusts uh, and honey on his breath. He's just a weird guy. You would not want him to walk in here and sit by you. I promise you, John the Baptist is that, is that strange guy. But he comes up out of the wilderness with a message of repentance and a message of forgiveness, and we can relate to that. You see, one of the things that we have said here over the years. By the way, we've reached the point now where we can say over the years. Last year, we had to say throughout the year. Now, this is like year two, so we can say over the years. It feels good to be at that point. Um, and sort of the grid that we choose to, one of the, the grid or the framework through which we see history is through, the, is through four basic questions that we believe that every single person will eventually ask as a way of understanding the world in which we find ourselves. We believe that these are universal questions that regardless of nation, regardless of, of ethnicity, regardless of place, stage, or whatever, eventually every single soul that has ever or will ever walk the earth will ask these questions. And the first is simply this, how did it all start? How did all of this, all of this that is, come to be? That's the first one. We want to know how everything that is came to be. We believe that there is something. Like we believe, I, I don't know if you have thought about this, but you believe that you exist. We believe that, that we exist. I believe that I exist. We believe that we are here together. And so we believe that we exist now in this moment, in this, in this place together. None of us doubts that. And if we believe that, if logic and reason tell us that we do in fact exist, we want to know where it all came from. How did all of this that we see around us actually come to be? If the earth is traveling around a star that we call the sun and, and, and the earth is, is spinning on its axis, and if we believe that the earth is literally tilted 23 and a half degrees perfectly on that axis that will allow life on earth, we have to wonder where in the world did it come from? Where did the earth and all its creatures come from? That's the first question. How did it all start? The second is this. It's what went wrong. You see, if we believe that we exist... And we do. We also understand and have an acute sense that things are not as they were meant to be. 
as we find ourselves here, we have this inherent understanding that brokenness and pain and, and allergies and death and tears and suffering are sort of a cosmic invader that have come into the world, that they do not belong here. It's why we, it's why we train people to be doctors, right? It's why we give billions a year to cancer research and Alzheimer's research. It's why, we, it's why our hearts break when the diagnosis comes back as untreatable, when the flood waters rise and when the hurricanes crash onto the shore. It's because we know that they are a mark of something that is not as it was meant to be. And so we ask, what went wrong? What went wrong? And then that leads us to the next question. Who is going to fix it? You know, that's what we do when something's broken, right? When the car won't start, when the water heater goes out, or the football team can't score more than one touchdown against Appalachian State, we, we see the problem, we recognize the problem, we feel the problem, we know that it exists, and so we call out to whoever it is that we think could come and make it right. So we ask, who is going to fix it? Because brokenness, well, brokenness is pretty easy to diagnose. Ask any coach, ask any teacher, ask any doctor or surgeon, ask any architect or engineer, ask anyone in this room and you will be able to figure out where brokenness lies. What's wrong with the world is easy to see, but it's a whole different issue to put something back together and make it right. And that's really the big question we're looking at here tonight. And John gives us this, this incredible witness here in Luke 3. As he comes out of that wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, he comes out identifying what went wrong. He sees it. He sees it just as clearly as you and I can see it today as we look around the world. He sees the fracture and he calls it sin. You see, sin's that condition of disorder. It's a condition where, where things are not as they're meant to be. It's the disruption of the how it all started. It's the what went wrong that stirs up angst, that stirs up strife and grief and hurt. It's the cosmic vertical fracture between creator, right, from the one who, who in fact did start it all and his creation. It's that thing that no matter how hard we study or how much money we commit to research, we cannot find the cure for it. And so there's three things that John tells us about the one who is coming. There's three things in this passage that he tells us about this one who is coming to fix it. And the first is simply that he is here. It's that the king has arrived. He says there in verse four, look at that. He says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. If you're following there, you'll probably see a little footnote in your Bible. It's a little footnote that points you back to the Old Testament. It points you back to the prophet Isaiah. And what John's doing is he's adopting the voice of Isaiah. He's making Isaiah's voice his own. And he's taking the role of the herald, calling out to the people, Telling all who will listen, all who hunger and thirst for a restoration of peace, every single one of us, he's telling them that the king is here. That the one who is to fix it has come. 
The word there for Lord in verse 4 means the one who is supreme in authority. That's what that word means there. It's, it's one who stands over and above all things. And he's not, in, uh, not, he's not just a part of creation, but he actually is the source. He is the cause of creation. And so what John is making clear is that the king, okay, the Lord, isn't standing. Like Jesus isn't standing on the porch of heaven looking down at the people of earth with his arms crossed and rolling his eyes hoping that we'll finally figure out how to get it right. That is not the picture that the Bible paints of our holy God. He's not up there shaking his head in disapproval. He's not sitting on the sidelines screaming at them. That's not how it works. You see, the brokenness of the world is such that we can't make it right. We can't vote it into office. We can't legislate it. The fracture of sin leaves us all scraping to try and make it right, but constantly hitting a ceiling. Like we can only go so far and we think we're getting there, but then we trip and we stumble and we fall. And so the arrival of the king reminds us that Jesus comes to us as we are, that Jesus comes to us where we are. And he comes to us with all of our mess. He comes running to us, not when we're at our best, okay? Not when we're holding the trophy, but he comes to us when we have missed the shot. He comes to us when we have dropped the ball. He comes to us when we've lost our temper. He he comes to us when we've wounded the ones that we love. He comes to us when we're, not when we're at our best, but when we are at our absolute worst. He sees us in that and he doesn't run for the hills, but he comes running to his people. Jesus comes to us when when we know nothing other than our neediness. It's what I heard Tim Keller say one time. He said, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. We, We don't come to Jesus saying, look at what I've done. Like we don't come to Jesus going, here's my resume. We don't come to Jesus because here's why you should pick me. We don't come to Jesus going, look at all that I've accomplished. Look how strong I am. Look how fit I am. Look how healthy I am. Look how smart I am. Look how pretty I am. We don't come to Jesus going, look, this is why you should pick me for your team. We don't do that. No, the grace of God isn't for those who deserve it. It's for those who understand their need for it. That's the first thing. The second thing John tells us here is that the king will succeed. It's that the Lord will accomplish his sovereign purpose. Look back there at verse five. He says, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. Listen, this isn't about changing the topography of the earth, okay? That's not, that's not what he's talking about. It's not about God being like sort of a cosmic landscaper. Most of us would agree, in fact, that the, that the variety of the earth. The variety in creation is what gives it its, its grandeur and its beauty. But what he's talking about here is a new moral topography. One author said he's talking about a new social landscape. He says he is talking about, about depression being relieved. He's talking about pride being flattened. He's talking about troubled personalities becoming placid and difficult people becoming easy to get along with. That's what the king is coming to do. That's why the king has come to the earth. He's not just coming to fix it. He's going to fix it. And so I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if you've seen any articles about the upcoming improvements uh, here at the intersection of I-20 and I-26. Anybody tracking with that? They're calling it Carolina Crossroads because that sounds better than Malfunction Junction, I guess. Uh, 
It's one of those places, honestly, that spot on the map is one of those places that gives us a tangible representation of the fallenness of man right there, you know? It's just one of those, it calls out every sin in our hearts every time we, we go through it. And so they recognize that that is a broken place and they want to fix it. Now, now, they don't know who's going to fix it yet. Let's just be honest. They don't know who's going to fix it. They don't know uh, what it's going to cost to fix it or really how long it's going to take to fix it. But they do have a plan. They do have a plan. Okay, the, the people who are supposed to be the best and the brightest minds when it comes to that have a plan. And the best case scenario, okay, the best case scenario for fixing that thing. If everything goes according to the plan, the best projection is that it will be completed in 2029. So if you're praying for God to give you anything, uh, might want to ask for like a double helping of patience over the next decade or so. You know, that's how a lot of our attempts to fix things go. And I can't even begin to imagine what the world is going to be like in 2029. I have a hard enough time keeping up now. And I have a lot of doubts about the proposed solution. I believe they want to fix it. I really do. I believe that they recognize the problem. I believe they see the problem and they want to fix it. And I believe that they've done all the research. I believe they have, they have devised the solution to fix it, that they've, that they've done... Uh, they've done uh, traffic studies, and they've done population studies. They've done all this stuff trying to figure out what's going to happen in 2029 so we can make this right. But I'm not really sure that they can, if I can be honest with you. That in a decade's worth of work, they may, in fact, not actually fix anything. And that's how it is so often in this world. We want to fix it. Like we genuinely do. We see brokenness. We see hurting and we want to reach out and make it better. We want to have a heart and touch people's lives in such a way that things are better, but, but often we can't. Well, it's not that way with the king. It's, it's not just that he's showing up. It's also that he's going to succeed. That's the second thing we need to know about him. When he comes to do something, he doesn't get it halfway. He always brings it to the end. And here's the last thing. It's that in that, the king will be glorified. Look there at verse six. It's a short one. I know, verse six is really short. Here's what it says. It says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I know it's so quick you could miss it. This is what he said again. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's going, this is the plan, this is the purpose, and this is the promise of God. It's that all flesh will see his salvation. This means, again, that nobody, not one soul, is off limits. It means that you can't out the grace of God. It means that you can't run too fast, that you can't, that you can't move too far away, and you can't hide well enough for the God of creation to stop the God of creation from coming and finding you and carrying you back home. It means that in our world of political feuds, of Twitter wars and silly rivalries, in our world of debates and counter-debates and campaigns and campaign advertisements, it means that in the midst of all the boasting and shouting and empty promises that the world has to offer, we see the most powerful display of the glory of God, not in a manger, not in a stable, not in Bethlehem, but in the humility of Jesus Christ at the cross. You see, it's looking 
to Jesus at the cross. That's where we see this promise of God fulfilled. That's where the hope, that's where the peace and joy, that's where the love of God are most clearly seen. They're seen as the perfect Lamb of God. We just sang it, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Well, we see that happen at the cross as the Lamb of God laid down his life for you and as he laid down his life for me. It's where the sinless one took on the sin and the brokenness of the many. That's good news. That's good news of great joy for us today. That no matter how long it's been, like no matter, maybe this is the first time you've been into a church and you're like, well, I don't even know if this is a church, honestly. Like this thing doesn't look like a church, doesn't kind of smell like a church. Um, the doorways are weird. Yeah, maybe this is the first time we'll say, the way we say it like this is we don't talk about the building a whole lot. This is the first time you've been among the church. Let's call it that. The church is the people, it's not the building. Maybe it's the first time you've been among the church in a long, long time. Maybe you're there every week. No matter how far you've run, no matter how long it's been, the arm of the Lord is reaching out to you right now. Because it was for our sake. It was for our sake that he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the crescendo. And that's the answer to the fourth and final question. We asked, how did it all start? We're going to say God started it. What went wrong? We did. That's what went wrong. But if you're really curious, what went wrong in the world? We did. Man messed it all up. You go all the way back to Adam and Eve, we jacked the whole thing up. And ever since Genesis, we get two good chapters in the Bible, and everything after that has just been suffering and angst, okay? We get two good, literally two pages in my Bible, and the whole rest of it is bad news, except for this part right here. Who's going to fix it? Jesus. And here's the fourth question. Here's the fourth. I know you've been on, just couldn't wait to get to that one. Here's the fourth question. How does it all end? How does it all end? How did it all start? What went wrong? Who's going to fix it? How does it all end? It all ends in the renewal of all things. It's in Jesus making all things new. I, I hope you get, I really do, I hope you get what you asked for this year. Unless you ask for something stupid, then I hope you don't get that. I hope you get something good this year. I hope you unwrap something tomorrow and you're like, this is exactly what I needed and wanted. That's the third time in the month of December I've said stupid, which means I owe my kids three bucks. Y'all can pray for me in that because it's kind of tight right now. More than that, I hope you get Jesus. That's what I really do hope you get. Even if you think you've known him your whole life, maybe you walk in here today going, man, Jesus is my best friend. I hope you get him as your Lord and Savior, not just as your friend. I hope you get that good news of great joy because it's for all people, even for you. Even for you. I hope, this is my hope for you, is that the King comes to you today, wherever you are, with whoever you're with, that he would come to you. That's a Christmas prayer. If you're a believer, that's an everyday prayer. Let's pray together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, God, we confess that we carry a lot of mess around with us. We come in with all sorts of doubts. Most of us are so self-centered and so concerned about who we are and what we're trying to do that we can't even begin to think about who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would burn that away from our minds. Allow us to just be here in your presence. As we're here with your people, as we're here with our family, as we're looking toward to tomorrow with all the anticipation and all the expectation and all the excitement that comes with it. And I pray that you would help us to see you more clearly. Help us to know you in our lives. 
forgive us for running away. Forgive me for, for running away from you, Lord. I pray that you, would, that you wouldn't give up the chase, that you'd keep dragging me back, pulling me with your hands so that I might know you, so that I might be in relationship with you. And we pray that you do that work, not, not just for our good. We want it for our good. We want to spend our, our lives with you. We pray that you do it for your glory, that all the world would see, that they would know. We pray that in Jesus' name.